Chris's Wicked Word Nash, a place to chow down on topics relevant to writers of all kinds. Hello, and welcome to Marissa's Wicked Word Nash. I'm Marissa, and this is a weekly podcast in which I talk about a wide variety of writing-related topics. Sometimes I focus on a specific writing technique or concept. Other times, I may discuss laws I feel writers need to be aware of. Sometimes I talk to a writer. And I also devote an episode every now and then to a particular type of literature, partly because I think it's helpful to look at writing techniques that are common in a particular genre, but also because I think it's good for writers, no matter what genre they write in or which techniques they favor, to be curious about all the types of literature out there. I've been doing this podcast for almost a year and a half, which seems kind of hard to believe sometimes, but putting these shows together and recording them and letting people know about them is a big part of my life. And one of the many things I've learned in all of my research for these podcast episodes is that a number of genres, no matter how different they may seem from each other on the surface, are actually similar in some significant ways. Which means that no matter how different writers may seem from each other, we all have some things in common. You may have always disliked a certain type of literature, but after listening to one of my podcast episodes, maybe you'll reconsider, say, a book or several books or an entire genre you couldn't get into in the past. However, my intention isn't for you to try and turn it into your favorite book or genre or whatnot, just to help you develop an understanding of the process the writer or writers went through and maybe gain some respect for that process and those writers. I think it's safe to assume that most of us want to be respected as writers and supported by other members of the writing community. But one thing to keep in mind is that you have to give support to get support. So you don't have to start liking horror or absurdist lit or romance or whatnot if you genuinely don't like it. But after listening to one of my brief podcast episodes on one of those genres, on horror absurdist lit, anyway, I haven't really done one on romance yet, you may realize, hey, I can empathize with what this writer is going through. So maybe I'll offer some words of encouragement next time I see them post something on social media or even retweet a post about one of their books. And as I've said in a number of past episodes, I intend for my literature-based episodes to give you just a taste of what a genre has to offer. If you do really like what you hear, I definitely recommend you check it out some more later on, either by checking out some more websites or maybe listening to some more podcast episodes dedicated to that genre. I mean, I typed the phrase absurdist literature into Apple Podcast search engine just now just to get an idea of how many other podcasts have discussed that genre, And I found two episodes of Russian absurdist literature, which I don't believe I mentioned in my absurdist literature episode. But hey, maybe I'll listen to them myself and talk about it in a future episode at some point. Again, I learn a lot doing this podcast. So having just said all of that, 
I am going to discuss a type of literature this week. And it's one you've probably heard about at some point, but there's a good chance it was in relation to a particular movie that was huge in the 1990s. In fact, it was even the title of that movie, and both plot-wise and structurally, the film pays homage to that genre. The movie I'm referring to, of course, is Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction, which was considered groundbreaking when it first came out and influenced scores of independent filmmakers afterward. But there are a lot of things about it that are problematic when we look back at it. It has a lot of racist and homophobic language, and it's extremely violent. And it's also been argued that a lot of the scenes in that film and other Tarantino films as well were blatantly stolen from other films. I'm a fan of his work overall. I admitted that in my episode on dialogue writing a while back, because he has done some things over the years that I think are damn near brilliant. And a lot of his stuff is fun to watch. But I've always had big problems with his excessive use of racial and homophobic slurs. And I'm glad he's been criticized more and more for his use of that type of language in recent years. And what I want to do in the remainder of this episode is not talk about Pulp Fiction, the film, so much anymore, but instead describe pulp literature for you so that you can develop an understanding of what it is and why you should know about it that's completely independent of the film. The first thing I'm going to say about pulp literature, which is nearly all fiction, is that it's very similar to escapist literature, which I did an episode on last July. In fact, an article I'm including a link to by the Vintage Library called What is Pulp Fiction? describes it as a kind of escapist fiction that originally appeared in magazines in the early 20th century. The pages of these magazines were printed on cheap, poor quality paper, which is literally the quote-unquote pulp its name refers to, with covers that, quote, were beautifully decorated many times with lurid portraits of pretty women in various stages of trouble and the handsome men attempting to rescue them, end quote. A quick Google search can show you plenty of examples of vintage pulp magazine covers. But more recently, Stephen King's 2013 novel Joyland and his most recent book, Later, which was published earlier this month, feature retro covers that look a lot like classic pulp book covers. So the influence of this type of literature can still be seen. However, there's no question that things have changed significantly since the 1930s and 40s, when this combination of cheap paper and sensational covers meant these works could be published in large quantities and sold for low prices at newsstands and other locations across the country. The Vintage Library notes that publishers were also able to keep the costs low by paying writers very little, which definitely wasn't cool. But, on the plus side, the low prices of these magazines, in many cases a dime, which went much further then than it does now but was still relatively cheap, made these magazines accessible to individuals who otherwise may not have been able to afford magazines, such as working class men and women and teenagers. 
It does seem that, for the most part, these publications were aimed at a younger audience. In an article called The Golden Age of Pulp Fiction, Mike Ashley explains that early pulp magazines largely evolved out of boys' magazines as well as dime novels, so that, as a result, they were, quote, tainted with a juvenile image, end quote. A pulp magazine generally featured stories by a number of writers, and many of these publications featured both standalone stories and longer stories, and in some cases, novels, in serialized format, over a number of issues. As you might imagine, quote-unquote pulp fiction encompassed stories in a number of genres, but Ashley notes that although early pulp magazines often published a broader range of stories to appeal to a wider readership, around 1915 you started to see a lot of pulp magazines specializing in particular genres. Ashley refers to westerns, detective stories, and romances as, quote, the big three, end quote. And if you're a fan of detective fiction, or if, like me, you don't generally read much detective fiction, but you read a lot of Stephen King, who is a big fan of detective fiction, it might interest you to know that Dashiell Hammett and Raymond Chandler were two writers, among many others, who were published by pulp magazines such as Black Mask early in their careers. Detective fiction was so big in the pulp world that, as Ashley explains, two hybrid forms evolved out of it. Ashley refers to the first form as, quote, weird menace pulps, end quote, in which victims, usually women, were, quote, hunted and tortured by sadistic villains, end quote. And the second form, quote, hero pulps, end quote, which, quote, featured fantastic adventures and were allied to the science fiction pulp, end quote. So, detective pulp fiction was huge, but the fact that these two subtypes emerged emphasizes the fact that pulp fiction went beyond the quote-unquote big three. Try to imagine where sci-fi would be if writers such as Isaac Asimov, Ray Bradbury, and Philip K. Dick, to name just a few, hadn't had their earlier works published in sci-fi pulps like Wonder Stories and Planet Stories. In a similar vein, fantasy and horror pulps like Weird Tales, which printed its first issue in early 1923 and whose website you can still find online, printed stories by influential horror writers, perhaps best known the Cthulhu stories by another writer who's problematic due to his racist and homophobic views, H.P. Lovecraft. This is not to say that these writers wouldn't have written the same stories if the pulp magazines hadn't existed, but the magazines undoubtedly gave these writers the opportunity to get their work out there to a lot more people and establish names for themselves, to the point that their influence is still widely felt among contemporary readers and writers. That's why, as I made clear in my escapist literature episode, and I'll repeat now, using quote-unquote escapist as a derogatory term to refer to writers who published in these magazines is short-sighted and elitist. I mean, sure, you can read a lot of pulpy sci-fi, horror, detective stories fairly quickly 
probably a lot quicker than something by William Faulkner or James Joyce, even shorter fiction by them. And there were even models that were commonly used in pulp fiction stories of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. I'm also including a link to Robert C. Warstel's The Lester Dent Pulp Fiction Writing Model, in which Dent claims that his 6,000-word formula, quote, has worked on adventure, detective, western, and war air. It tells exactly where to put everything. It shows definitely just what must happen in each successive thousand words, end quote. So it seems that this Lester Dent formula requires four primary elements. The first element Dent mentions is, quote, a different murder method for villain to use, end quote. The second one was, quote, a different thing for villain to be seeking, end quote. Three, quote, a different locale, end quote. And four, a menace which is to hang like a cloud over hero. End quote. I gotta admit, that was fun to read just now, but you can look at a formula like that and think that that might lead to a predictable story. Or you can look at it the way Warstel does. That this kind of formula helped aspiring writers during this time period learn, quote, to write and become the great brands we've known and loved, end quote. So again, you can look at a formula like that in a positive light. Maybe people didn't know they could write and then they saw a formula like that and they're like, hey, maybe I'll give this a try. But even if writers of pulp magazines weren't interested in writing fiction on their own, think about some of the things that were going on in the world around them around this time. World Wars I and II, the Spanish Flu, and the Great Depression, to give you just a few examples. Pulp fiction gave readers an affordable opportunity to leave that world, even for just a few minutes a day, and apply their imaginations to a fantastical world where a lot of that stuff didn't exist. As Jake Flanagan states in a piece called Ten Great Novels that were originally published as pulp, Quote, a great piece of pulp fiction is bellatristic in that it constructs a self-contained world which functions as the ideal hideaway from life's everyday disappointments, existential angst, and frustrating uncertainties. End quote. Take a look at the world we've lived in for the last year and a half. I've read some things in that time that literary snobs would consider quote-unquote escapist, and I'm not about to apologize for it. Nor should you if you've done the same. I mean, you can't just watch the news all day, every day. Although you should watch a little bit because you need to know what's going on in the world. Not going to deny that. Unfortunately, toward the middle of the 20th century, a lot of pulp magazines disappeared due to the rising popularity of comic books during this time and television. Ashley explains that those that remained generally evolved into men's magazines or digests. However, 
It's good to know that even though genuine physical examples of pulp magazines no longer exist unless you're a collector, and if you're thinking of becoming a collector, you're going to need thousands of bucks if you want a copy of a pulp detective magazine or, say, a copy of Weird Tales from the 1930s. However, you can still find myriad websites and anthologies paying tribute to Pulp Fiction, and in addition to Stephen King, Flanagan points out that contemporary writers you may read, such as two more favorites of mine, Chuck Palahniuk and Elmore Leonard, as well as writers like Michael Crichton and John Grisham, used elements that were common in Pulp Fiction stories in their own works. I don't know if that's intentional for any of them, except possibly for Leonard, who, in addition to his crime novels, also wrote a lot of Western novels and stories, and whose works contained a lot of elements that I associated with Pulp Fiction when I read them. And coincidentally, Tarantino's 1997 film Jackie Brown was actually based on Leonard's novel, Rum Punch. But it does prove, I think, that despite its reputation for being quote-unquote escapist and its appeal for younger audiences, Pulp Fiction has had a profound effect on contemporary literature. And for that reason, it's a good idea for writers to learn about it, either to build on its tradition or to develop respect for writers who come out of that tradition. So, let me know what you think. Email me at marissadellefarfalle at gmail.com and follow me on Twitter at at marissad13 and on Instagram at www.instagram.com slash marissadf. Also, please check out my Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash marissadf. For $1 a month, I'll mention your name in an upcoming episode, and for $3 a month, I'll not only mention you in an upcoming episode, but I'll also give you access to two bonus episodes each month, as well as previous bonus episodes. I just put a new bonus episode up that you can check out, which is my second for the month of March, in which I paid tribute to two writers who I considered very important who passed away last week. And finally... I'd really appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. It'll help a lot more people find out about this show. Until next time, thanks so much for all of your support. The retweets are huge. They really help spread the word. And I appreciate all of them, as well as you're letting me know what you think about the show. I'm going to leave you now with a quote by Raymond Chandler that's not necessarily referring to writing pulp fiction stories, but to reiterate what I was getting about at the beginning about all writers having things in common, no matter how different their subject matter or styles are, I think this is good advice for just about all of us. So, according to Chandler, quote, write as quickly and as passionately as you can. Don't edit. Don't second-guess yourself. Don't worry about how pretty it is. Just get the words on paper and then worry about how they look. End quote. I love all of that, especially the part about not second-guessing yourself. Don't do that. And I say that as someone who still second-guesses themselves. It's something I need to work on, but 
I think it's I think it's good advice. But whatever you do, stay safe and peace out. This podcast has been brought to you by Anchor, which is the easiest way to make a podcast. Go to anchor.fm for more info.